I am about to create new heavens and a new earth. That's the way Isaiah's song, which we read Sunday and sing Sunday, begins. The promise of a future in which all things are renewed from the center. Jerusalem at the heart of the earth is renewed, made into a city of joy and delight, not weeping and distress. And then all of creation is brought into Jerusalem's joy. And so there is, in Isaiah's sanctified imagination, a, a holy future of wholeness, a, a, a future in which all creation is renewed. But notice, much that is in the world remains unchanged. What Isaiah foresees is a creation in which all the poison has been drained. The world as we know it remains mostly in its deep structures. Its basic conditions remain and identity holds. Jerusalem remains Jerusalem. The people of God remain the people of God. I remain myself. And yet, there is no calamity, there's no disaster, there's no tragedy. There is still the cycle of life and death, but there is no untimely death. There is still building and planting. There are still the cycles of seed time and harvest, night and day. There is still gain and loss, giving and taking. There is still prayer. There is still labor in childbirth. There is still need. And yet there is, in this Isaianic vision, there is no sorrow, no bitterness. There, at least the sorrow has no bitterness in it. And in this future, and probably the most famous lines from this well-known song in Isaiah, in this future the wolf and the lamb remain, but they feed together. Instead of the wolf feeding on the lamb... The wolf feeds with the lamb. The lion is in this future as well as the ox, but the lion eats straw in the same way that the ox does. Right? So the lion has become like the ox rather than the ox like the lion. The serpent remains, but its only food is dust. And these beasts do not hurt or destroy all on all my holy mountains, says the Lord. So in, in the Isaiahic vision of the future that this reading gives us, there is deep continuity with the basic conditions of human existence. It has been healed from its most tragic, disastrous, painful aspects. And of course, as Christians on Easter, this is a fitting text, right, for Easter, because as Christians, we believe that Jesus is the one who has brought this future about that he he has brought this future into reality he has made it present it has come present to him and in him and through him but what i want to focus on today is the ways in which jesus fulfillment of that isaianic promise jesus meeting of that expectation accomplishes more than isaiah imagined and brought about changes that Isaiah could not have imagined, or at least those who heard Isaiah could not have imagined. I think there's a way of reading this in which Isaiah knows more than he's letting on. 
that the, the text, if we can talk this way, the text of Isaiah is suggesting something more than it seems to be suggesting. Because if, if you stop and think about it for a moment, what kind of changes would make it possible for the cycles of light and dark, life and death, seed time and harvest to remain, and yet there be no calamity, there be no tragedy? How, how, how is it that that could hold true? I think Isaiah is inviting us by the way he's imagining this future. He's imagining us to consider what would have to happen for the wolf and the lamb to feed together. What kind of change could bring that about without effacing the identity of the wolf or the lamb, the ox or the lion, Jerusalem or Babylon or any other city? Israel or any other people. This, I think, is already hinted at in Isaiah. What Jesus brings about, and this is what the first Christians learned to their surprise and in some ways dismay, is that Jesus brought about that future, but it affected deep, deep, deep shifts, far deeper shifts than they they could have anticipated or would have wanted, probably. At least, if if they had been asked what it is they wanted in the beginning. So, Rowan Williams, we're going to turn to the gospel text in just a moment. Rowan Williams has a fantastic essay called Between the Cherubim. It's in his collection of essays on Christian theology. This essay, Between the Cherubim, is subtitled The Empty Tomb and the Empty Throne. And it's a meditation on, on the empty tomb. And I, I want to return to some of what he says about the empty tomb as an empty throne at the end of the talk. But I actually want to begin with the very end of his essay. He makes a reference to an Anita Mason novel. I'm not going to... I realize just now I don't remember the title of the novel. But it's a, a novel... I'm pretty sure this is the one she's written about Simon the Sorcerer and his conversion. What brings about his true conversion... Don't quote me on that, but I'm pretty sure it is. Anyway, in that novel, there's a line. Williams quotes it. There is a kind of truth which, when it is said, becomes untrue. There is a kind of truth which, when it is said, becomes untrue. Then Williams, commenting on that, says, The theologian's job may be less speaking the truth in a context such as this. In other words, when you're talking about the empty tomb. When you're talking about Easter, the theologian's job may be less speaking the truth than the patient diagnosis of untruths and the reminding of the community where its attention belongs. So I, I want to say, I, I think our reflections on Easter, our Easter sermons, our Easter songs, our Easter prayers are often far too accommodated to the world as we know it. We tend to imagine Easter in ways that make a kind of affective or even sentimental sense, as well as rational or philosophical sense. We, we talk about it as a kind of glad reunion, you know, uh, someone who, against all odds, has survived. And William's words here, I, I think, they're, they're, it's a good caution, right? We need to diagnose what are ways of speaking that are not faithful? I, I want to name three very quickly. And then 
with those warnings in mind, come back to the gospel texts. And I think you'll see why we have to be careful to avoid this way of talking about resurrection and the empty tomb. The first is that Jesus didn't really die. And of course, no one says it quite like that. But I do think we are always at risk of leaving the impression that Jesus survived death or that Jesus, his body ceased to breathe, but he personally remained very much immortal and went about his work in the quote-unquote spirit realm so that death there has no teeth. That there's, there's no sense of finality to it. That there's a, a time in which his, his body is not responding to external stimuli, but he personally remains viable. A, a kind of life after death or immortality. And I, I don't want to dismiss that out of hand. I mean, there's a reason that the church has found its way into some of that language. But the way in which we mean it, I think, is, is deeply problematic. Because we, we, we are often framing Good Friday as not only something God wanted to happen, you know, it fits somehow in the mechanisms of salvation, but also as something not that tragic or disastrous because Jesus, in fact, wasn't suffering much. He wasn't really dead. Another way of talking that I think we want to avoid or, or at least handle very cautiously, we want to diagnose it as a potential sickness is when we we talk about jesus coming back to life and that i think is just a mistake jesus does not come back to life and again there's a reason we talk like that it does kind of gesture in the direction of something that's true jesus is not dead but living i mean scripture itself will talk in those ways but it's it's going to leave the wrong impression if we talk about him coming back to life. So we don't want to say that he didn't really die. He was dead. He did die. And he didn't come back to life. Something else happened to him. Something truly mysterious. Something new happened to him. Something that doesn't simply fit in the patterns of what we already know about the world. And then thirdly, we don't want to talk about the empty tomb as a proof. And, and we often fall into this error, I think, suggesting that we know, we know that Jesus was raised from the dead because the tomb was empty and was found empty. And, and all of those ways of talking, worked out as we often work them out, leave us talking about Easter as a, as a happy ending to the story. As if Easter is this final moment in, Jesus, in the timeline of Jesus' life in which things suddenly work for the good, right? So that Good Friday is the, the threatening complication in the narrative that suggests it's all going to go badly, but we know better. And in fact, God in the end comes through, right? In, in, in the teeth of death, God comes through and rescues Jesus from death. But that is not what Scripture actually says, or the Christian tradition, in its wisest and truest, actually says about what Easter is. And Easter is uh, 
far more disruptive, unsettling, overturning, overwhelming, glorious, mysterious than we than we often allow. So with that in mind, let's come to the gospel texts. First, Luke 24. You can, in, in the lectionary that we use, or that I'm using for these reflections, these gospels can, you can choose one or the other. But I want to talk about them both and show the ways in which they're they're gesturing in their own way. They're pointing to the same truth, which is the how unexpected and unexpectable the resurrection of Jesus is, and how the the newness it brings about is radically new and and absolutely new. So Luke 24, on the first day of the week at early dawn, the women who had come with Jesus from Galilee came to the tomb, taking the spices that they had prepared. They found the stone rolled away from the tomb, but when they went in, they did not find the body. So they, and this is true in all of the gospel accounts of the resurrection morning, of people coming on the tomb, the event having already happened. And that is a clue to the fact that what happens with Jesus happens not merely in time, but to time. The resurrection is not something that happens to Jesus after his death. It is an event like the creation of all things and like the consummation of all things, like the coming of Jesus that is the setting right of all things, his appearing, as Scripture talks about it. Resurrection is mystery. So in for a long time there was in evangelical circles and arguments there's the, the issue about belief in the resurrection was framed as belief in a literal resurrection or a metaphorical one right either you believe Jesus was raised from the dead literally factually historically or you're liberal and you believe that it's a metaphor and there's a there's a kind of stunning John Updike poem, Seven Stanzas on Easter, which he says, you know, let's not mock God with metaphor. If Christ was raised at all, it was as his body. The amino, the amino acids rekindled. But what scripture says is even more startling than that. Yes, it is true. Jesus' resurrection is not a metaphor for something happening in the minds and hearts of the disciples. That's certainly true. But Jesus' resurrection is not the coming back to life of someone who had died in the way that it, we see with Lazarus or we see with the, the widow's son. This is something else. This is a mystery. In fact, it is the mystery. And the gospel clues us into that. Luke's gospel clues us into that in that it, it can't be described. No one can be there to see it happen but they can see what has happened because of it. The stone is rolled away. The body is not in the tomb. And they are perplexed about this. They're perplexed. And suddenly two men, maybe two angels, maybe two saints, are in dazzling clothes beside them. The women are terrified and fall to their faces on the ground. And they are told, or they're asked, why do you look for the living among the dead? He is not here, but has risen. He is not here, but has risen. Remember how he told you while he was still in Galilee that the Son of Man must be handed over to sinners and be crucified and on the third day rise again. 
then they remembered his words. So again, think back to reflections from a couple of weeks ago. Not just that they recall what was said, but that their spirits reawaken to the truth of what this means. And they return to the apostles and share it with the apostles and all the other disciples. But they're not believed. Their words sound like a, a rumor, like a, like a a dead tale, an idle tale. They do not believe them. But Peter does get up and runs to the tomb, stoops and looks in, and sees the cloths by themselves, the linen cloths by themselves, and goes home, amazed. So notice the affective state. They they come in grief. They come weeping to the tomb to anoint the body. Then they're surprised to find that the body is not there, and they're perplexed. Then they're visited by angels or saints, and they're terrified. So from grief to perplexion to terror. Then they have rekindled in them an awareness of what Jesus had said, but they do not know what it means, and they know they don't know what it means. So they rush back to the apostles, and they're not believed. So the, the it, we're, we're right, I think, to stress that the women are the first evangelists. But we, we often forget that they were not believed by other disciples, not only because they were women. I mean, that, that's true, I'm sure, at least in part, that the fact that they were women meant that they were not taken seriously. But notice, even when Peter sees for himself, goes, stoops, and looks in, he is amazed. He's left. He's astonished. He's, he's reduced to wordlessness. He, he does not know what to make of what has happened. Right? So again, you can see here in this text, no one is experiencing this as some kind of glad reunion. No one is elated that the tomb is empty. They don't know what it means. And I, I think it's because in, in their world, a world that's not only shaped by their fallenness and its fallenness, but also shaped by prophetic hope. Even what they've imagined allows for death. Even what they've imagined prophetically, as they've understood it anyway, allows for Jesus to be a true prophet, even if he dies. We know that in the passage that follows this in Luke 24. The Emmaus disciples say to Jesus, not knowing it's Jesus, they say, we had hoped he was Messiah, this man who was a prophet from God. So the fact that Jesus dies does not make them think he was false. Because even in, in terms of their hope, never mind their hopelessness, never mind their faithlessness, even in terms of their faith and hope and love, they still assumed that this, the world God has made is a world in which death happens, a world in which loss happens, a world in which absence is unavoidable. And so... The empty tomb for them, they, they cannot make sense of it. They don't know what to make of it. So let's come to John 20, which I don't think we should read as somehow at odds with Luke 24. I don't think we should feel pressured to make them agree, to harmonize them in any way, even though the focus in, in John is on Mary Magdalene in particular, rather than Mary and Joanna and Mary, the mother of James, and other women. They focus specifically on Mary Magdalene. But listen to her response 
to the emptiness of the tomb. Early on the first day of the week, while it was still dark, and that's, a, I think, an important detail, right, that Easter has happened, but it has happened in the dark, right? Mary Magdalene came to the tomb and saw that the stone had been removed from the tomb. Right? And both Christmas and Easter, as well as Jesus' death on the cross, all of this stuff happens in the dark, right? and that that's vital. Right? Early on the first day of the week, while it was still dark, Mary Magdalene comes to the tomb and sees that the stone has been removed. Right? She gets there, but it has already happened, as I said. She then immediately runs to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the beloved disciple, and says to them, Peter and John, they have taken the Lord out of the tomb. Right? So notice she gives an interpretation to what she's seen. They have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we do not know where they have laid him. So that may be a reference to the other women in the narrative that John has kind of kept out of frame. But notice she gives an interpretation to the empty tomb, and, and it's one of tragedy. They, they've defiled the body. They've taken the body away. Then Peter and the other disciples set out to the tomb. They run together. John gets there first but does not go in. Peter pass, gets there later and goes past him into the tomb. Then John comes in and John sees not only the cloth and the linen wrappings but also notices that there, there is a piece that's been, the cloth that was on Jesus' head is rolled up in a place by itself. And when he sees this, he believes, right? So Peter had, had seen this, but when John sees it, he believes. We don't know what he believes exactly because we're told they did not understand the scripture that he must rise from the dead. Meaning, as with the women, the disciples, even in the standing in the empty tomb, don't know what it means. And they return to their homes. And, and that language, again, both in Luke and in John, is a reminder to us that they're going back to the world as they've known it. They're going back to a world whose deep structures, whose basic conditions remain unchanged. But Mary stands weeping outside the tomb. That in, in these tears, there are the seeds of a different possibility. That the disciples go back home, they return to the world as it is, they accept the conditions of things. Amazed by what they've seen, but they accept the conditions. Mary does not quite accept them. She's weeping. And as in Psalm 126, those who go out weeping, bearing the seed, it, her the gift of tears is creating possibilities for her. And she also bends over and looks into the tomb. And this, this I think, is critical to understanding what the scriptures have to say about Easter. It requires a bending of perspective. You cannot see what is happening here standing like you've stood. You, you have to bend. You have to turn to see it. So she bends over and looks into the tomb, and she sees two angels in white sitting where Jesus' body had been. And they ask her a question, woman, why are you weeping? So in both Luke and John, you get questions from these angels. Questions to the women, or in this case, the woman. What are you doing? Why are you weeping? Why are you looking for the living among the dead? And these questions, of course, should call back to mind the, the Eden story, the story of Eve. And God's question 
as well as the, the serpent's question. And notice she says, they have taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they have laid him. So she remains disturbed by what she first encountered. And Peter and John have come and gone without comforting her. They've come and gone without offering any consolation. And she remains there in her disconsolation, in the empty tomb, and, and responds here, not by falling on her face as Luke describes, but simply saying that she's in grief because the body of her Lord has been taken away. As soon as she says this, she turns around and sees Jesus standing there. So this is an indication, I think, that she senses a presence behind her. And in the book of Revelation, this happens, right? That where, where John will be facing and then suddenly turn to see. And so you know, he hears that there's going to be a lion, the lion of the tribe of Judah, but he turns to see the lamb. So here she makes her own confession they've taken away my lord and then she turns and sees jesus but she does not know it's him and this is again a clear indication that she is in a different realm she has moved into reality has shifted around her and she doesn't know it because she's in the presence of the one she desires but he does not appear to her as she remembers him and jesus asks her that question again woman why are you weeping whom are you looking for? And this question shows us, right, that what Jesus is doing is, is altering creation, making creation new in a way that calls what we think we've known of creation into question, including the identity of, of those we think we know, what we think we know about them. Supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him, and I will take him away. So then she she relaxes a bit or seems to relax in, into maybe this is not something Jesus enemies did to defile the body but maybe he, he simply had to be moved tell me where you've taken laid him and I will take him away but the 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 I she is taking away is a corpse and then Jesus says to her Mary he just speaks her name and in saying her name it awakens her she turns now of course she's already facing him but now she turns and says to him, Rabboni, teacher. And Jesus' response is telling, do not hold on to me. Now, nothing is said in the text about her grasping him. Nothing is said about her falling and throwing her arms around him. But I think that what we're meant to hear here is that when she calls him teacher, there is a kind of recognition, but it's a recognition based on what she has known of him her grasp of him and her grasp of herself as his student as his disciple so what jesus is doing is saying no what I, the newness i'm bringing about is more radical than you're allowing i am not who you have known me to be i am but i'm also not whom you've known me to be the change i'm bringing about is is more destabilizing and disorienting than you you're able to accept so don't cling to me because I have not yet ascended to the Father, go to my brothers and say, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. And she goes and announces to the disciples, I have seen the Lord. And she told them that, that he had said these things to her. So she's the apostle to the apostles here. And what she announces is the seeing of the Lord. And I'll come back to that in a couple of moments. 
the, the, what I want to stress, though, before I move on, is, is the ways in which this is, for all of them, for Peter and John, for all of the women, the Marys, Joanna, it is profoundly disorienting, upsetting, subversive, overwhelming. They are not meeting this with, with simple gladness. They're not, in fact, they're not joyful at all. And in the moment that Mary is joyful, when she recognizes Jesus, teacher, notice she doesn't call him Jesus, she says teacher, she's grasping for a way of relating to him that is familiar to her. There's a, there's a kind of over-familiarity. And almost like Saul grasping for Samuel's cloak, she's grasping for what she's known of Jesus, trying to hold on to the Jesus she remembers and, and is told she must not cling in that way. In All Things Beautiful in the chapter on Easter, I tried to get it at some of, tried to get at some of this this sense of Easter as the the unmaking of the world as we've known it and the, the remaking of the world as we know it. So let me read just a bit of a bit of that chapter. We can see then that all of the gospels end strangely. And I've I've been talking in the sections leading up to this about all four of the gospels. All of them end strangely, and we know why. The evangelists, like the figures in the story, are striving to come to terms with the fact that Jesus has been raised from the dead. The women who flee from the tomb are not the only ones who are afraid. The, the evangelists know the fear, too. What they have seen, and even more, what they have not seen, or not yet seen, is too much, not only for them, but for everyone. This should press us to think again, and much more carefully, about what we mean when we say that Jesus is risen. Clearly, and this is back to the point Ron Williams is making, we need to diagnose unhealthy ways of talking about the resurrection. We need to think much more carefully. Clearly, it was not simply comforting for those who first experienced it. It seems to have resolved nothing for them. If anything, it created endless lines of new tensions. Why then do so many of us think of it as a happy ending? Or, I could add, a kind of glad reunion an unexpected reunion with someone thought dead or thought lost. First, we need to accept this hard truth and let it settle in. Jesus' life ends as all lives do, in death. As we confess in the creed, he died and was buried. Rightly understood, then, his resurrection is not an event that happens to him after his demise, as one more occurrence, however unexpected, in the succession of events that make up the story of his life. As Rahner says, Resurrection is definitively not a return to the limits of a life restricted by space and time and the facts of biology. Right? Jesus is not coming back to life. He's not coming back into the world as it was or even into the future Isaiah imagined. He's coming as a future even Isaiah's imaginings could not grasp. Isaiah's divinely inspired imaginings could only gesture toward what, in fact, Jesus accomplished. The Easter story is not an account of the unexpected final phase of Jesus' historical career. Instead, it is the story of the salvation of Jesus' entire life and ministry, including his death, 
and his being dead. As Robert Jensen says, resurrection does not mean that my life starts up again. It means that the life I lived is eternally presented and interpreted within the community of God. Jesus is who he is because he lived this life and died this death, and he is raised. Death was not merely an interruption for him, and his resurrection was not a resuscitation. He did not come back to life. He was not raised from the dead in the sense that Lazarus was, or, in, or as some believe John the Baptist had been. He was raised from the dead in a unique sense, the first fruits of those who have died. 1 Corinthians 15, which is New Testament reading for Sunday. Now the life he leads is not the continuation of his human existence, but its eternal fulfillment, its salvation, its deification. And I'm quoting Rahner again. This earthly life of Jesus is not, after all, simply past and gone. It is. It is completed and eternally value, valid. It has itself been accepted by God and acknowledged as real, from the human subjectivity of Jesus. It has been gathered out of the mere flux of earthly time into the now of eternity and taken into irrevocable possession, the real nature of the heavenly intercession of the risen Christ with the Father. Jesus' life in its entirety is what makes creation creation. That's the mystery that we've been talking about. In other words, the resurrected Jesus does not remember what he once did and act now in ways that are faithful to those memories. He has not left his earthly occupation behind and taken up a new one, nor is his heavenly occupation the mere prolongation of his earthly one. Rather, his intercession for us is eternal. So I, I can keep reading, but there's something disastrously weird about reading from your own book. But I, I think you, you get the sense, right? That This is what I'm trying to argue, that and not just me, I mean, I'm here arguing that this is what the scriptures teach and what the Christian tradition at its wisest has said, that the resurrection is not a resuscitation, it's not a coming back to life, it's not a happy ending to an otherwise bad few days. It is the remaking, and in fact the making, of all things. It is, it is the enactment of creation as God intends it, and has always intended it. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, I think, speaks to this astoundingly well, in part because he's drawing on Maximus. So let me let me quickly read from Bonhoeffer, and then I'll take you to what to what Maximus says that points to this same reality. So this is from Dietrich Bonhoeffer's Creation and Fall lectures. Let me start here. Gotta go back a page. The God of creation, the God of the utter beginning, is the God of the resurrection. The God of creation, the God of the utter beginning, is the God of the resurrection. The world exists from the beginning in the sign of the resurrection of Christ from the dead. Indeed, it is because we know of the resurrection that we know of God's creation in the beginning, of God's creating out of nothing. The dead Jesus Christ of Good Friday and the resurrected Curios Lord of Easter Sunday, that is creation out of nothing, creation from the beginning. The fact that Christ was dead, but did, did not provide the possibility of his resurrection. In other words, death is not the condition necessary for resurrection to be brought about. The fact that Christ was dead did not provide the possibility of his resurrection, but its impossibility. It was nothing itself. 
It was nothing itself. There is absolutely no transition, no continuum between the dead Christ and the resurrected Christ, but the freedom of God that in the beginning created God's work out of nothing. So what Bonhoeffer is saying here, and he's drawing on Maximus, is that creation is what resurrection brings about. That creation just simply is made possible by the fact that God raises Jesus from the dead. And what, what Maximus will say is that creation is what it is only because Jesus is who he is, and Jesus is who he is because of what's happened to him. Let me see if I can find this. I had it in hand and I've misplaced it. I'd really like to to read Maximus in his own words. But I don't know what I've done with it. And I don't want to start the recording again, so give me just a minute. Well, I am not finding it. What in the world did I do with it? Ah, here we go. I got it. Okay, so this is Maximus. Uh, question 59. Listen, and he's talking specifically about Romans 8, but listen to how he... Listen to how he describes what has happened in the resurrection of Jesus. We are, we are, I don't, this is a long sentence, I've got to find a place to start it. For Christ, being God and man by nature, is inherited by us as God in a manner transcending human nature. So, for Christ, being God and man by nature, one person, two natures, is inherited by us as God in a manner transcending human nature, by means of grace according to an ineffable participation. And for our sake, and in our own form as human, he makes our nature his own, and thereby inherits himself jointly with us according to his inconceivable condescension. So, listen... And this, by the way, in question 59, he, he's dealing specifically, Maximus is dealing with 1 Peter 1, 10, and 11, which says that the Spirit moved on the prophets in the past who foresaw Christ's suffering and knew beforehand that they were writing for our sake. So Maximus is writing about this prophetic anticipation and, and says that th this is all possible. That, that way of knowing is possible for people in our past because... In Christ, God has established the nature of things and has established a gracious relation to us that exceeds the nature of things. So if we come back to the, the point I've been stressing over and over in this talk, Isaiah is imagining a future in which the world is like this one, drained of its poison. It's like this one where there's joy and not sorrow, or at least there's no bitterness in the sorrow. There's no tragedy. There's no calamity. There's no abuse. There's prayer, but there's no anguish in prayer. But what Maximus says Jesus has brought about, and I think this is what the scriptures say, is something stupendous, something that leaves us in a stupor, because it is more than we could have imagined. 
even when we were inspired by the Spirit to imagine a better future, we still imagined a future in which the world remained basically unchanged in its structures. But what has happened is that the world has been joined to God so that while the world and its structures does remain good, there is a nature is redeemed, restored, healed, but we are opened up into relation with the God who is infinite. So something more than natural, something graced beyond our capacities in and of ourselves has been made possible, right? In a manner transcending human nature. In a manner transcending human nature. So just stress first again this with Maximus. This is an ineffable and inconceivable reality. There's a inconceivable condescension coming to us in an unthinkable way. And then there is a participation in a way that cannot be articulated into a mode of being that is excessive of our, it's prodigal, it, it's saturated. So our humanity, like Christ's own humanity, is carried into modes that are divinized that are filled up with the spirit i mean in the language of the pentecostals that i was raised on that are anointed are raised by we it, it is humanity anointed by the power of the spirit and notice there's this movement christ is inherited by us as god but christ inherits himself as he's joined to us so in maximus's terms he inherits himself jointly with us so this, this is the reason that the experience for Peter and John, for Mary and Mary and Joanna, for the disciples and the apostles on Easter Sunday, the first Easter Sunday, the reason they experience it the way they do is that their being joined to him, being jointed with the resurrected Jesus, is to be disjointed from everything else. And the disjointedness they're experiencing, the, the overwhelmingness of this experience, the being reduced to to a stupor is a sign that this mystery was more than they could ask or think it's better than they could have imagined even in their best imaginings even in their most spirit inspired imaginings this is more this is gloriously infinitely more in fact more is misleading language because it it more suggests just an addition of the same kind but this is this is a, a more of a different kind altogether. So that, what that allows us to do, right, is to rethink the emptiness of the tomb. So I want to come back now as I, as I start to wrap up. I want to come back to what Rowan Williams says about the empty tomb as an empty throne. And the, the, what what Williams wants to stress is that the emptiness of the tomb testifies to the fact that the church cannot possess Jesus. In fact, these are his exact words. Jesus is not the possession of the community, not even as raised into the kerygma or raised into the preaching of the church or the witness of the church. He is alive beyond qualification or risk. He's alive beyond qualification or risk. The freedom of Jesus to, to act is not exhausted by what the community is doing or thinking. Right? So Jesus is, is free. He is living beyond qualification or risk. He's living in the life of God. He's living the infinite life of God. This man, Mary's son, Pilate's victim, Judas's friend, this man 
is living the infinite life of God with us and for us. And so Williams closes that meditation, that chapter, by saying the central image of the gospel narratives is not any one apparition, but the image of an absence, the image of an absence, an image of the failure of images, which is also an absence that confirms the reality of a creative liberty, an agency not sealed and closed, but still obstinately engaged with a material environment and a historical process. The image of an absence. And what is William saying? That the empty tomb is not a proof, it's a sign. And what's it a sign of? It's a sign that Christ is not here. He's here. Right? So in that line in the Gospel of Luke, when the disciple, the women who come to the tomb, the disciples are told, he, why do you seek the living among the dead? He is not here. He is risen. They're at first thinking, he's not here. He must be there. He's not here. He must be there. And the, the angels immediately, or the saints, whichever they are, immediately call up this reference to Galilee. And so at first they're thinking, oh, he's not here in this tomb. He's out there somewhere in the world. But that is to leave the world too much unchanged. What, what Mary finds out in John's gospel, and, and this is what John is narrating, is that he is not here. He's here. And it's only when she makes that second turn, it's only when he says her name, that she begins to realize, oh, he's here. And the he who, who is here is he as he is, not he as I remember him to be. Jesus is truly free, free even from my experiences of him, free even from my knowledge of him. And I can't cling. I have to live. He died with open hands. I have to live with him with open hands. I, I, I tried to capture some of this in a poem I've been working on for years. And I, I still don't know that it's quite finished, although I think it's, it's, it's really close. It's called The Unsealed Jar. And I'm meditating on that line, that question in Luke 24, why do you seek the living among the dead? Take, for example, this open window or this unsealed jar filled with nothing. Now, think. The chasm over which the spirit broods, the gape between the cherubim, the virgin's tomb, the contracted womb. Can you see it? Emptiness is no longer empty. The grave is not a void, not to be avoided. For he is not here, standing in the crowd or out from it. He is not here, no more among the living than among the dead. He is not here, not another body in the room, but the room itself, emptied for us an absence holding all our attention. This is what it means to live in the room that God has created, in the resurrection, the bodily resurrection of Jesus to the right hand of God, the God who is present everywhere. Jesus bodily, personally, is present there. And he's present there as Lord. But notice in this transfiguration that happens to Mary... She first, in grief, when she's standing outside the tomb weeping, 
She is talking about the Lord as something she possesses. They have taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they have laid him. And she's talking about possessing him, putting her hands on his corpse. Tell me where you have taken him, and I will take him. But by the end, after she's been lovingly chastened for clinging to him as she remembers him, the witness she brings to the apostles is not, I have seen my Lord, but I have seen the Lord. And her hands are opening out. She's taking the form of the cross. She's coming to look like the Jesus she's just encountered in that she's not possessing. She's living in the room he's made for her. This, this is what Robert Jensen says about God. God is roomy. God is roomy. There is room in God's life for you and for me, for all of us, for all things. And that space is what the empty tomb witnesses to. But you have to bend to see it. And you have to have your expectations broken. Easter is good news. It's, it's the best of all possible news. But it is disruptive news. It is mysterious news. It is news that does threaten to undo everything. Well, that the new creation God is making, the new creation that Isaiah foresaw, is not simply renewed. It is not simply a future in which there's no calamitous death, in which there's no death at all. And that is exactly what Paul prophesies. Right? If, in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, we have hope. We have hope. Because... He is going to reign until he has destroyed every principality, every power that is against life, that is against justice, that is against truth and goodness. And he will put all those enemies down. And the last enemy to be destroyed is death. Come quickly, Lord Jesus.